All right, hey everyone, welcome back to Card Overflow. Today, we were actually just talking Paul Benigeri, who is the co-founder of archive.ai. We can get into that. I, I'm really excited about that and what you've done with HVMN, which is kind of like a, a ketone or a nootropic e-commerce brand. But first, Paul, maybe we could just start out, if you could just introduce yourself and what your experience has been in e-commerce up to this point. Hey everyone, my name is Paul. My background's originally in computer science, so I studied computer science, and then about five years ago, got a software development job as an early co-founding team member at HVMN, Healthier Modern Nutrition. And so that was a whole journey from building features on the e-commerce website and platform to learning about digital marketing, PR, all of these different channels to build demand, which wasn't going to happen by itself. All about e-commerce product management and thinking about features like you know personalization, quizzes to improve conversion, and you know migrating from a custom platform that we had built in-house to Shopify. So thing that gave me a really interesting um, understanding of the landscape and where things are at. About a year and a half ago, I took a lot of the learnings and processes and workflow that we had built out and looked at and that were quite successful at HVMN and started Archive to build software to help automate a lot of the digital marketing workflows for e-commerce that we see a lot of brands struggling with. And these workflows are you know slowing people down and we're excited to build tools and software to just completely cut them out and start generating a lot of value for companies there. Awesome. By the way, is that app live or is still in beta? Yeah. So we have two products. We have archive communities where, which is a managed uh, piece of software and, and service that we use to work direct to consumer brands and companies to build what we call nano influencer communities. So instead of working with doing one campaign where you're paying 20 influencers, we'll work with brands and build a community of 500 influencers, 1,000 influencers. And what we mean by community is, you know, having a set of real relationships with influencers that we're reactivating and compounding every month. And then our second piece of software is called Archive App. That's a completely standalone self-serve app. It's in alpha right now, but we're onboarding about 10, 20 brands every week. And it's, you know, getting some really, really good traction because it solves one of the most common pain points for brands that leverage Instagram and are also in Shopify. Customers post, influencers post, they get great content through stories, but what do you do with that content? How do you save it? Either you're saving it manually, which is not super fun, and you have to do it on the weekend, or you don't save it, and then you lose that, you lose that on that content. And Archive App just saves all of that content automatically, so you can use it whenever you need it. Got it. Okay. So what's it, like, you kind of premise the company around nano-influencers, I looked at HVMN right now. They're doing a partnership with Apollo Ono. Ironically, you know, Olympics going on and he's one of the most decorated winter Olympic athletes. Not a nano influencer, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. He, he's like, you know, one of the, the best, especially for performance enhancements. But you are focusing on nano influencers, which seems more accessible in some ways to many brands. And then also maybe diversifying the, the impact and also maybe the cost. Why are you focusing on nano influencers as opposed to getting maybe more bang for your buck, so to speak, from one bigger influencer? Yeah, so don't get me wrong. Big influencers can be super, super successful, but everyone wants to work with an Apollo or a you know, famous artist or DJ or athlete, right? Everyone wants to work with them. It's super competitive. So they're, they're expensive. And so in order to do that really well, you need to have a really integrated partnership. And I think the HVMN you know, product partnership is a great example. They worked hand in hand with Apollo to develop a flavor that he's a super big fan of, that he helped craft, helped develop. And there was this rich story. It wasn't just Apollo posting a couple tweets 
or Instagram post saying like, hey, check out this brand into the amend. It's awesome. Here's a post. That wouldn't be super effective. So with these bigger celebrities, and if you're working with big influencers, in order to get great value from them now, you have to do something really integrated, which is great, but take some time. You can't do it as much. With nano influencers, it's a little bit of a different story. And you're right. It is very, very accessible. A lot of brands start off with nano influencers because you have a couple hours during the week. You have an intern. You have time yourself. You can just DM maybe 20, 30 influencers a week, ask them to try your product, and they'll share content. They'll share stories. They'll start getting some buzz. They'll start getting some traffic, some sales, some content you can use for ads. What we specialize in is scaling these influencer marketing programs. So what we found is the most reliable way to do this is not to work with five or 10 big influencers. It's to work with hundreds and hundreds and potentially thousands of nano influencers. And so we found a really, really good pocket of opportunity for our business to help brands do that with this large number of influencers. Because again, anyone can work with 10 influencers, 20 influencers, maybe 50, maybe 100 if you're getting pretty good with spreadsheets and tracking. But if you're trying to have really high quality relationship with 500 or a community of 1,000 or 2,000 influencers, that's really difficult. You can either you know, hire some people in-house to do that full-time and they're going to be running on spreadsheets or you can work with us and we'll likely outperform them and be more cost-effective just because we've invested so much time into software to help automate and improve that workflow. Yeah, it's an interesting oxymoron because you say like, have good influences in relationships at scale. And at some point, like there's even a number, right? A scientific number of like the the number of close relationships you can have in your network. It might be like 70 or something. So yeah, naturally as you get. Well, well, that's interesting. That's for a human, right? But I think with a brand, that number can scale much more significantly because people have relationships through product launches and things like that. And they don't necessarily expect the same. You don't need as good of a relationship as maybe me and you, or you and you and a close friend. Relationship with a brand typically means, you know, if you're if an influencer is enjoying the product, they're following up with the news, they're understanding that that's actually totally fine, you know. And and so I think maybe an influencer can have relationships with up to seventy brands, but we for sure have seen brands have relationships with thousands and thousands of influencers that are super high quality. Yeah, for sure. So you're you're building a software, and I think that's awesome because in some ways you you say the the manual ways a spreadsheet. The, the way to scale is using a software. What what does that look like? The step-by-step kind of like the process, the mechanics of running an effective influencer campaign. Well, the first thing is, what do you, the first thing is understanding your goals. There's lots of different types of companies that have lots of different goals. Are you looking for something that's a lot more sales and ROI driven, in which case you might need to think about coupon codes. You might think about, you know, stories versus feed posts. So you can have swipe up links that you can track and attribute. You also have to think about where your audience hangs out. If you're selling these really cool clothing for maybe 18, 25 year olds, TikTok's going to be really, really good for you. If you're maybe a, you know, beauty company for older females in the 40 to 50 range, then TikTok's going to be terrible. You might want to look at YouTube or Instagram. And so the first thing is really just designing and testing things so that you understand where to scale your effort. At the end of the day, it's all relationships, right? When you go spend money on Facebook, Mark up, doesn't care. He's not going to give anyone a discount. So whoever, it's kind of like whoever has the best product and spends the most money is going to get the most reach. With influencers, it's very different. There's a lot of relationship-driven dynamics. You're building it, you're negotiating with every single influencer, whether you like it or not. And so it needs to be a lot more kind of like crafty and human. And again, depending on your, the stage of the company and your scale, if you're looking for brand awareness, you're looking for content, you might want to do Instagram, maybe five big influencers. You might want to do hundred small influencers. And so depending on you know, the size of the company and your goals, it's, it's going to depend. 
I can talk a little bit more about what something can look like for a smaller company that's starting out, right? It's like, hey, yeah. you've got, you know, you're, you're, you launched in Shopify a couple months ago. You've, you've set up your, you know, products and your landing page with your custom workflow and sales are starting to trickle in. Maybe you're doing 50 orders, 100 orders a month. So you have a little bit of budget now to work with influencers. Here's what you can do. Go find some of your competitors. Look at their land, look at their Instagrams, see who's tagging them, who's, who see who's posting. I'm sure you'll find some influencers there. You, you can then have a list of maybe 10, 20 of these influencers that have used competitor or similar brands. It could be a competitor, directly competitive, or it could be you know, a similar brand. Maybe you sell a really high quality keto protein powder and you see someone that has a really high quality you know, keto loaf of bread, right? Not necessarily competitive. And you can just DM those influencers and let them know that you want them to try your product and be like, hey, I saw your content. I know you're into keto foods. Why don't you try this product? And most of the time they'll respond. One trick you can do is DM them and then add a comment in one of their latest feed posts and be like, hey, I just DM'd you, check it out. That'll increase your response rate significantly. And from there, you're kicking off a great relationship potentially with an influencer who's going to be a fan of your product. You can do all sorts of things from there. They'll probably post and do a couple story posts just if they like your company and they like your product. And so you'll get some free impressions and you can do giveaways with them, right? So you can be like, hey, would love to give away a couple tubs of protein for, for your followers, your audience. And so again, you're trading a little bit of product for potentially some great awareness. They're going to create some content. You can repurpose that for ads. You can put that on your landing pages. It's, you know, you're starting to build this community a couple of influencers at a time. But if right. you do that month over month, that's going to compound into whatever, you know, metric you're optimizing for. And again, if you're pushing for awareness, you don't have to worry about coupon codes. If you're like, hey, I really need to get sales. Well, think about using a Shopify app to set up an affiliate program. In a couple of clicks, you can have something set up. You can give them a coupon code and you just PayPal them every time they get a sale. Maybe give them 10%, 20%. Just literally have a conversation with people. Ask them what they'd be excited about and, and dial that with your brand. Yeah, that's awesome. That, there's a lot there. What I was really curious about, and you touched on it, is what the expectation is in terms of compensation. So I assume you, and, and then budgeting as well. So I assume that you are going to allocate some of your money for seeding product, right? And then, so that might be like X dollars per month. And then you might assume that part of the sale, say 10 or 15% might go to that person. And it might be like through a, a SaaS product where you're not touching anything right. or you, you just send them money. But what, what's kind of like standard or what's expected from these nano influencers? So it, it ranges and that's where the relationship magic happens. With a say nano influencer, you can get content for free if they're excited about the product and they think you're nice and they might charge you $200 for a feed post. And what, what is a nano influencer? It's just someone that has pretty good engagement, say in the 5,000 to 20,000 range. Maybe they're getting 500 likes per post. They might ask for any, anywhere between 100 to 500 or $1,000 based on, on their engagement, right? So there's a huge window. Now that same person, is doing free stuff for all of their friends, right? So even if they're typically trying to charge $1,000, the rate is somewhere between zero to 1,000. And again, it depends on your relationship with them. If you approach them and you're like, hey, I want one feed post at this time, boom, here's our product, that's it. It's gonna feel very transactional. So you're gonna start off on the higher end of that rate. You can still negotiate with long-term deals and things like that, but it's not gonna be the best way to enter the relationship. If you're like, hey, love your content, I just want you to try the product. No question, no strings attached. If you like it, we can talk about working together. Then the influencer likes you, likes the product. They'll probably give a story for free because it's just aligned with what they want to do. They want to talk to their audience about new things they're trying. So you'll probably get a couple of freebies, which is great. And then you can work with them on different things. 
And, you know, you'll be in a much better spot to do that than to just start off cold. So a lot of people are, a great strategy is to build this community through seeding before you actually start doing transactions with influencers. I'm not saying never pay influencers. Sometimes you really do want to pay for influencers. If you're on specific content at a specific time, it can work really well. But in order to get a good deal, you know, it, it's, it's going to likely make sense to seed it before, gift them before, see if they're even interested in your product. Because if they're not interested, they're going to charge you a lot and they're not going to be authentic. And if they're not interested, their audience is likely not going to be super interested too. Yeah. Thanks for laying that out. I'd love to learn more about how you approach this from your experience leading growth at HBMN and specifically in terms of measuring this as opposed to other channels. Like, yeah. you know, Facebook might be pretty straightforward. It, you know, you're paying X dollars cost per click and then it, you're basically getting a cost per acquisition. This is a little more nebulous, especially if you are going for more of an awareness play and it's not going to be so attributable. What's going through your mind as a marketer on the brand side when you're saying like, I have this many options, like, should I actually go through with this and make that investment? Yeah, good question. So one of the transformational things that happened at our company was that we started thinking about having a marketing budget and we're like, okay, we're going to put 10 to 20% of the budget on brand. We're going to put 40% or 60% on performance, 10% on retention, uh, like email marketing and things like that. And I'm missing a last bucket. I don't know where the last bucket is. Brand, performance. No, because that falls in brand. Anyway, but you really think about like allocating the budget. And so I'm blank. We have four buckets. There's anyway. So you have some, some on brand, you have some on performance marketing, which is going to be directly attributable. And then you have some stuff uh, oh, the last bucket is creative, of course. If you're going to do photo shoots, if you're going to pay influencers for content, we have we have a, a, a pool of money for creative because we need good creative for all of our campaigns, whether it's performance marketing or brand. And then we have brand, performance marketing, and retention. And I think all of these channels are measured differently, right? Retention, what you're going to typically look at is, hey, you know, what is the incrementality? If I email, if I run my email campaign on 50% of my customers, Am I actually going to see a measurable difference in that cohort versus the ones that don't get emails? Most brands don't even look at that. They look at Clivio reporting and it basically just inflates a bunch of stuff. And it's it's not actually how much money you're generating. Brand is different. Brand is hard to measure. For a lot of brands, especially at a stage that's like sub 100 million a year revenue, you're probably going to kind of like benchmark it against other campaigns. It's going to be a little bit of a feel good thing. And you're going to just maybe look at clicks, impressions and things like that. But typically, if you see something that's just getting a lot of buzz, a lot of traction, that's probably a good sign. So what would that be? Clicks on what? For example, impressions or like website clicks. So if you're doing a, a branded campaign on like Facebook ads, for example, you can look at the lift on uh, in terms of clicks to the landing page or, or impressions, right? Like traffic, for example, is a, a way a lot of brands look at, you know, potentially brand lift. And then the interesting one is performance marketing, right? And so what we started doing to measure that really well was a combination of looking at actual channel CPAs. So for example, Facebook might be like, hey, your CPA is $50, right? For every transaction you're generating of these new customers, it's costing you $50 on Facebook. What we'll also do is set a post-purchase surveys on the back end, and we track the new customers, how much percentage, you know, reports to Facebook. And we typically see some channels take a lot of credit. So for example, Google ads will take a lot of credit. They will claim a lot of transactions, but they're not actually driving a lot of new customer acquisition. When you ask customers, how did you hear about HBMN or your brand? 
unless you have a really, really strong Google shopping campaign program or things like that, which wasn't the case for HBMN, it was just basically like brand, you know, brand retargeting and, and, and brand searches. Google took way too much credit. And so that credit was reallocated in, you know, through our attribution modeling to other channels like influencer marketing or Facebook. Because what happens is someone sees an ad or a post from an influencer, they Google HVMN collagen, and then they click the Google ad and Google's like, okay, boom, we got them. Right. Um, but that's not the case. That's not what you want to see. And so through these post-purchase surveys, we were able to look at, you know, the true impact of different campaigns and channels and compare it to, you know, the Facebook reporting, even with Facebook. The interesting thing was that when we looked at a $50 CP on Facebook, we actually proved through post-purchase survey that the CPA was lower than that. So Facebook took less credit than we expected. Facebook took less credit than it actually needed to. And then, you know, we would also see when we would run big influencer marketing campaigns, we would see, we would go from maybe like 10% of new customers coming in through influencer marketing, you know, self-reporting, and maybe that would bump up to 20 or 25% when we did these bigger campaigns. And so that's how we would track it. That's super interesting. So basically what you're saying is that influencer, it was, it was nebulous. You really had to identify that on the back end of people right. who purchased. It's really hard to track. Otherwise it's like podcasts, right? A lot of people will, whether it's this podcast or a consumer podcast, they'll hear about a product. There might be a coupon code, but typically only 40% or so of people that use a podcast will use that coupon code and will be attributed correctly. But if they complete their survey, they'll be like, oh yeah, I heard about this company through a podcast. And what you want to do is take all of these all of these users and kind of like add them back to that podcast attribution or that influencer attribution so you can have a really clear picture. And so what you want to get to is a halo effect. So you might see for podcasts or influencers, your coupon codes are hitting a maybe 2x ROAS. But if a lot of people are not using that code, then that might actually be a 3x ROAS, right? So you might want to be spending even more in that channel, right? It's, it's important to understand that because a lot of people will run influencer marketing campaigns and look at their coupon codes and be like, oh, it's not generating any value. And then if you actually look at post-purchase surveys, you're like, wow, like a lot of people are finding out about a company through that, just Google's taking credit or they're not putting the coupon code. Right. And so also to be clear in the post-purchase survey, like the words matter a lot. Like how did you first hear about it or how, why did you end up purchasing? Like, was it more like yeah, first so touch? We do it. We do. We, we really focus on how did you hear about us? Because for us, performance marketing drives new customer acquisition, right? And so we really want to hear about, you know, people finding about HVMN first. So I think there's a little bit of boring stuff. People do different things for post-purchase surveys. They'll ask attribution related questions like the one we used. How did you first hear about HBMN? They'll also do things like, what if anything you, you know, you know, what if anything was preventing you from making your order or something, or did you have any questions about the product? So those are different tools that you can use. And we stuck to the first one to get as much data on the attribution side, because that's what we were looking to get data to support our decision-making on. Got it. Okay. And then, so you were saying that, I forget the exact numbers, it's maybe like 20% on performance and then 40% on brand or, or so whatever. Now, now I remember because I have the last book in my head, in my head, we spent about 15% on brand and 15% on creative. So that's like 30%. Mm -hmm. And then we would spend typically 50% or more on performance marketing and the rest on retention. So, you know, okay. email marketing, SMS marketing and things like that. Again, it depends which stage you're at. I think a lot of brands should start off fully focused on performance marketing because there is no one to retain. And 
initially you're going to go a lot further if you have successful, you know, performance marketing, than if you're just trying to do brand marketing and, and doing these, you know, moonshot experiments that are hard to prove. Yeah, totally. I mean, at, at this point, who knows, maybe, you know, iOS 14, iOS 15, all these changes, who knows, maybe if spend might shift away from performance yeah. marketing, but I'd love to go back to your time because you, you're part of the, the co-founding team at HVMN. You're responsible for, I guess, a, a migration to Shopify and, and some of the technical things where there's no margin for error, but then also it's on you to get some momentum, get customers in the door, get traffic. And then I think I saw that HVMN turned out to be the most highly trafficked blog in its space, right? Which is a highly competitive space. Yeah, we, we, we did really good on the SEO side. It was painful. We had a lot of expensive agencies that did not work out. And then we did it in-house and we got from, I think it was like 12 or 18 new visitors a month. So measure that through Google on just our SEO blog pages, all the way up to 250,000 in wow. you know, uh, 14, 14 months or so. Yeah. So what does that look like? Like, how do you make that happen? So... I think a big part of the learning process was just talking to a lot of agencies and people in the space that understand SEO, read a ton of stuff and try to understand like, Hey, how does this channel actually like work in, in what are the different factors? We brought on an SEO agency that was terrible. There are some great SEO agencies. I was just very new to the field and had no idea what I was doing. And so we spent a lot of money for an audit and some like bull crap. And we just, I just saw the, the work in the process and I was like, Hey, like we can do this better. We can do this better. Let's use this tool. So started kind of like replacing some of their workflows. And we were realizing that like, Hey, they weren't very good. So we brought on this guy called Nate to run content. We really, really awesome guy with editorial background. And he really helped spearhead everything. I would spearhead some of the technical infrastructure stuff. So, you know, designing our, you know, keyword research system, helping hire writers and things like that. And then he would manage the writers, bring on new writers and make sure that all of the content was really good. The way we think about writing great, building an SEO channel is you have to write epic content that's going to rank. So there's a ton of epic, great content you can write for whatever company, right? You know, you can do your founding story. You can do the history of nootropics. You can do whatever, all great, interesting content. But if you're going to want that to drive traffic, you need to also factor in the keyword opportunities. So you need to look at how many people are searching for these terms on Google. What are some terms with a lot of traffic? What is the competition, right? Is it a hard, easy, medium keyword? And if we write content for it, will people eventually buy our products, right? So we had terms like really technical sciencey terms that had a ton of traffic, but very low conversion. And so that's something we kind of want to avoid. We want to get the combination of things that get a lot of traffic that have not super high difficulty. What does difficulty mean for SEO? It means that there's a lot of other pages with great domain authority that are competing for that content. So you want to find open space there. And the final one is like, where in the funnel is that term? If you're doing, again, if you're doing a protein powder, keto protein powder, someone's like, hey, best keto protein, that is ready to buy that, that buyer's prime. If you get that traffic, he's going to buy. But if you, you know, maybe do like something around like strength training, which is potentially relevant, that's more like, Hey, you know, how to build strength on keto. That's like not going to be as good. The buyer or the person wants to learn about a workout routine, maybe not necessarily by protein, but maybe you can retarget him. So those are the factors. And what we really want to do is create a system and a flywheel that is, you know, going from zero articles per week to, you know, four or 10 that are number one, extremely high quality, right? So having great writer science review process, but that also fit in on that keyword. 
So we think about it as like an overlap, right? On one side, you have all of the, you know, possible like keywords, you know, on Google. And on the other side, you have all the great, excellent content that you and your team can write. And you want to, you know, get those at that intersection. So a lot of people are like, hey, a lot of writers are like, I don't want to do SEO. I want to write great content. It's like, well, in order to do SEO, you need to write great content. But the SEO part is just helping you make it so that when you post your article, it doesn't matter if you don't get any clicks the first week because Google's going to pick that up and you're going to get a swarm of traffic that's never going to go away, right? So it's a little bit of, of that dance. And there's a lot of things we do on the technical side to improve it. But the main thing is really just writing great content and having a good keyword research process to make sure you know the right kind of content to, to write. Yeah. <laughs> systems are so important because, and, and, you know, I've, I've done myself, I'm doing it myself. It is so hard, especially like sitting at a blank, blank screen, trying to figure it out, but where yeah. does distribution and backlinks fit in there? So I think that has changed a lot back in the day. Like you could do backlinks all day and Google would really like it. Now there's this crazy like industry of people like doing wholesale backlinks and things like things like that. Essentially what you want is Google to think that your site is, has authority, right? Is legit in the space. And I think that the best way to do that now is to do it in a different way than just trying to acquire backlinks. So guest posting is still really good. And if you're lucky, you can work with someone that has a lot of great relationships at say Forbes or whatever health sites. These are like for Healthline, for example, these are legitimate websites in your industry that have a system for guest posting. And so if you create awesome content for there, you're going to get a great backlink. The other thing that works really, really well is PR, right? Instead of being like, hey, I'm going to try to like spam a thousand bloggers and be like, hey, link my stuff, link my stuff, link my stuff, which is just is so competitive now and doesn't even work that well. I think those are the two things that can really move the needle quickly. Because again, I mean, one example is with HBMN. We were these, it, it was all around like when intermittent fasting was getting hyped up around Silicon Valley. We had these biohacker breakfasts where we would fast for 72 hours and then break breakfast together. And we had TV crews come every week, literally every week. Sometimes we'd have like three TV crews at a breakfast in a small San Francisco, you know, a bakery. And they would just film us like breaking fast and interview us. And we got so much, so many good high quality backlinks from that content that it really helped us on the SEO side, right? So it's like, what did you do to get so many backlinks with SEO? Well, we did PR. We just had like really interesting stories on a trend that was booming and we were lucky to just be featured all the time. We did work with different partners to try your typical backlinking strategies, email like, you know, a thousand bloggers every week, ask them to guest post, ask them to contribute. But I don't think that had as big of an impact compared to the PR. And nowadays I think that it's even harder to get progress there. And Google is so smart that it'll just know that it's, it's just typically going to be really low quality links you're getting anyway. Yeah. So ultimately it does come back to what you're talking about. High quality content. That's story worthy. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's two ways to do that, right? You can have separate PR, which is creating non SEO keywords, right? That's just not going to be great. We're just going to not going to necessarily rank on Google. Like, Hey, the history of the company or talk about intermittent fasting at your company, which is not really going to hit your keywords, but you'll still get links because your company is going to get mentioned. Or the other one is to write really great guides and in-depth resources that people are going to Google and then actually kind of link to, right? So those are two, you know, two different ways of writing great content. But again, you need to write a great resource for someone to want to link to it, right? Yeah. I'd love to dig into your work kind of like from a, a technical side and the marketing side. I think it's such an interesting combination, but you mentioned personalization as, as super important. And then I think that what you're, what you did with HVMN is 
like the, the, the customer data is so important in regards yeah. to what you're talking about with retention and, and when you might want to send a replenishment order. But if you can walk me through maybe like some interesting ways or strategies that you're using the customer data that you're gathering in whatever ways you're doing it, your post-purchase survey or a quiz or whatever, and then how that actually ties into personalization where to create an opportunity. Yeah, so I think that's that's actually a pretty big challenge for a lot of e-commerce companies. I think that it's very fragmented, especially within the Shopify space, and it's hard to set up a good data stack. So we spent a lot of time working and reworking our data stack, and, and that was just a lot, a lot of work. But typically, you have all of these tools and triggers and automations that you can use for different things. And I think, okay, there's two sides. We talked about on the attribution side. We collect data so we can make better decisions. On the content side, sorry, uh, on the content side, one of the big things we did was we were collecting, I don't know, like thousands and thousands of emails a day, right? And so we did a lot of personalization on the blog based on that. And we did a lot of personalization on the email side and on the products they saw. So one of the things that we had worked really, really well was we had these inline email CTAs. Um, I got this tip from Julian over at Demand Curve and Belker. Mm. He did it in his blog and they convert super, super well. So halfway through the blog and all the way at the end of the blog, you put some interesting key, interesting thing like, hey, would you like the recipe guide? Would you you know, want to learn how to lose weight on keto? And then have a little bit of copy and then an inline signup link. And the thing is, all of the people who are getting are super high quality because they're not the ones that are about to bounce from your page. They're the ones that read the content. And so it's great, good conversion and really, really good stuff there. One of the interesting things that we did on the data side was even A-B test these different headlines. And it was so crazy. We would see a lot of times you do A-B tests and like nothing changes. Like if you change your card a little bit, nothing changes. But on these, we would see variations of like 2000% improvements by having like the right trigger for the right piece of content. And so we did a lot of personalization there to, you know, to tweak the, the sections based on the categories people were reading and things like that. When we, when we got those emails, we also kept track of the article they were reading, right? Where they signed up. And so that led into the whole kind of like personalization on the SMS side and on the content side. So we would tag people, their landing page, their content pages, and we would build triggers. We use this tool called Rejoiner, uh, really, really great competitor to Clavio. We like it a lot. And we would basically build different journeys and tweak different content modules inside the journey based on the content, right? So if someone signs up on the healthy, like bodybuilding section for keto, they're going to get different content than the fat loss person on keto, right? Mm. And we're going to curate that journey for them. I think on the, on the product side, there's just infinite ways to personalize, right? And I think there's some companies that are doing much more interesting things with HVMN compared to HVMN that are actually personalizing their entire product stack based on these quizzes. So we work with a company called Pros. They will give you a super long you know, survey and quiz, and they will actually create a different formula based for your, for your hair based on where you live, your hair type, your age, all of these things. Purology is obviously another great example, but I think the more brands do that, the more, you know, you can, that that's itself can be a really, really good way to get people in the door and just deliver higher quality product, right? So it's not just, hey, how do you upgrade your website to convert a little bit more with personalization? It's like, hey, how do you make your product better through personalization? I think that's a really interesting space that's continuing to blow up. Yeah, I, I love the pros quiz and interesting story. I mean, that that the machine, of course, like that's a huge defensive mode. I think it was like a $25 million machine or something crazy like shipped in from Europe to make these one-off orders. But I wanted to get back to what you were talking about in specifying the customer journey and 
the, the dynamic content. So if I'm focusing on weight loss and you're focusing on strength building, like I would see a different blog page and different articles than you would. Is it, was I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Through emails. We did not get to do that on the website, oh, okay. but, but through emails, through retargeting on Facebook and through SMS, we would build custom triggers that would tweak the content based on some of these properties. Obviously we have, you know, other retention campaigns, uh, card abandonment, replenishment, where we'd use customer data in different ways to try to predict the right time to give an offer and things like that. But I think on the content, on the content side, it made a lot of sense because we had so much content. It made a lot of sense to just refine it based on what people are looking for. Got it. Okay. So yeah, quiz is one way and that you can understand future intent because you're gathering zero party data of what their interests are, what their goals are, challenges. But the way you did it was what blog posts they, they visited. So it might be like- It was slash. Like we would track their landing page. So which blog mm-hmm. they entered in, what's their original query that got them to HVMN. So how to lose weight on keto, best keto protein powder, all those things. We would keep track of the blog posts they read. And we'd also keep track of what they signed up at. So if they signed up, when we mean sign up, it's provide their email. If, when they, if they provide their email on this page or that page, on this category, that category, and use these signals as ways to personalize the email flow. Got it. Okay. And yeah, how many, how many segments would this ultimately pan out to be? I mean, it's hard to say, but it, it was it's very dynamic because we'd have different segments. And then even within the emails, we'd have conditional logic, right? So we would send, we wouldn't use like machine learning personalization or AI personalization, but there was quite a lot of, you know, if thens and switch statements to suggest the right content based on different properties. And same thing for products too, right? We have products that are better for sleep. We have products that are better for energy. We have products that are better for, you know, different things. And so we would also use those signals to personalize the product related sections in the emails, right? There's not just content. We obviously try to promote our own products in there too. Yeah. Awesome. Paul, so I, one thing I wanted to learn a little bit about was your approach. And this, this can be with like what you're doing kind of on the agency side or with the HVMN, but when you focus on retention, and I think like retention also is going to be a topic that becomes more paramount and urgent, uh, can't necessarily continue to throw money in increasing acquisition costs, there has to be a focus on customer experience, but what that actually looks like and and from like the technical side and also from your brand experience side of strategy that you use to ultimately get people to like find their, I guess, build HVMN into their habit because that's, that's really important, but not only that, but then also actually have them realize the benefits that the product can deliver. Because I think some sometimes it can be such a nuanced thing, right? If you're talk, talking about focus or being more awake or going to sleep more easily, those can be hard to actually nail down for some people. So if you can walk me through your customer experience strategies and process, ultimately, as it relates to improving lifetime value. Yeah. I think my now that I've been, I've worked with a lot of different brands and helped a lot of different brands, I have a very different mindset. It's retention is, I think, somewhat determined, predetermined by the product. Some products just have better retention than others, right? And so I think that's the first thing to think about as a business. If you're trying to really improve your retention, if you have good data on your retention, it's really, really bad. It's, it's very hard to double or triple that, right? So I think that's something to just be very clear. 
one of the easy things to do is just to remain top of mind, right? If you're, you know, what you want to make sure, and, and that's where brand marketing comes in. When you're that, you're, when you're that customer that runs out of your protein bar or your protein powder, it's not something that you really have on subscription, like maybe a software subscription or a medicine, right? That you're actually like, you know, you have a daily thing, you're going to run out, you need some more. So I think if you have a product like that, it's very, it's different. And there's a lot of tricks you can do to improve that. But, but I think it typically a lot of CPG companies are not like subscriptions by default. And so they require on a lot of this, you know, brand recognition. So just being available in more places is an easy way to improve retention. If you're available on Amazon and on your own website, for example, then you might, someone might realize they're out of protein when they're shopping on Amazon and they might buy your brand and they might have just not, that's, that's it. Right. And that's kind of like marketing and, and being positioned there is really important. So there's a lot of things there. The second thing is, you know, we did a lot of influencer marketing so that every month we would have constant new flavors being announced, constant things. And that would really, really help, you know, recall and people remember that like, oh, wow, like, you know, these healthy people are taking these products. Oh, I want to try this new flavor. Oh, I want to try that. In terms of the actual experience, there's not like a ton, I think, that can be done to really move the needle. Obviously, great customer support. Obviously, the better the packaging, the better the, the impression. And, and we tried to have great packaging. We did, had an amazing designer, Michael Lee, who always did great stuff there. We had some inserts and things like that. We had like coupon codes to reorder. We did all of the tricks in the book. X percent off when you subscribe. When you're canceling your first month, we ask why and try to build that into you know a feedback loop with our with our product team always trying to make the product better. We'd give people incentives for, you know, converting from a regular time user to subscription. But again, at the end of the day, different products would have different just subscription thresholds or, or subscription kind of dynamics. And I don't think there's that much you can do on the e-commerce side to really, really drastically change that. Again, you can improve it, but I think when I was at HBM and I was like, hey, we have like recension that's like this percent, like we're going to like double it or triple it. And that was never feasible. We got these wins here and there, but again, it's really all about the product dynamics and, and how good your product is and, and what kind of product it is. Some products are just not things you really need or want to subscribe to. Yeah. Like Al Pacino says, it, it's a game of inches, right? Retention, just incremental improvement. Paul, this is so exciting and, and interesting. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. Sure. What's the best way to find you? on Two places. You can either check me out on Twitter, my last name. So at Benny Jerry, B-E-N-I-G-E-R-I, or archive.ai, our website, if you're interested in archive app to automatically save and collect your Instagram stories, if you're an e-commerce brand or archive communities, if you're looking to scale your influencer marketing efforts, those are, those are going to be the three places to look at. All right, Paul, thanks so much. Cool. Thank you. It was really good to talk to you. And that's the episode for today. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. We love you for it. If you found anything valuable at all or want to share your feedback, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also just drop us a line to hello at cartoverflow.com. We'd love to hear your feedback or suggestions so we can cover it in a future episode. All right. See you next time.